Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here today. Everyone in Port Perry and Bowmanville or anywhere around the world, we're so glad that you're joining us. It was the height of the Cold War and the Soviet leader had just died, Brezhnev. His wife did something shocking, dangerous, and unexpected. Here's how one person recalled it. She had been the first lady of the Soviet Union for 18 long years. Her husband, a loyal and lifelong communist, used the KGB to quell opposition all the time. Uh, Brezhnev and his wife did not know or speak of God in this environment. The church did not exist. They never spoke of religion, and they certainly never practiced it. Faith was seen as weakness in Soviet culture to be controlled and limited by the government. Uh, No one with any governmental aspirations would be known as a person of faith. Regularly, he imprisoned priests and believers, closing seminaries and churches whenever they got in his way. But when her husband died, she did something extraordinary. She stood beside her body's husband until a few seconds before it was closed. Then just as soldiers touched the lid to close it, unexpectedly she leaned over her husband's body in front of all of the atheistic elites of the day and on national Russian television and made the sign of the cross over her husband's body. There at the atheistic center of this empire on national television, she traced the image of our hope and salvation on the man that she had lived, loved and lived with for 54 years. Now to so publicly express hope in Christ in an atheistic nation was an act of great courage. Now it's one thing to hear that and even cheer that out. It is another thing to be in the position to have to do that thing. And that is why we are going to end today our series in Daniel and one of the most famous stories of the Bible which brings home the notion of not just thinking right but acting right. Daniel and the lion's den. Now I grew up in church, I know many of you did not, but for we who grew up in church, we tend to talk a lot about the story, we love the story. It was acted out many times uh, for me by Sunday school teachers with felt board lions and there was Daniel and all of that. When someone was up here talking on and on and on and I was bored out of my mind, <laughs> that's hilarious, uh, I used to read a cartoon Bible. I loved Daniel in the lion's den. It was cool, it was epic, it was inspiring. But let's just stop and honestly take an account of the story. Being thrown into a den of intentionally starved lions to be eaten alive is nothing but terrifying. We learned last week that Daniel by this point is over 80 years old. He's near the end of his life. He's served faithfully and this is how he ends. So let us again, whether you know the story or not, let us enter into and not just think about this story. Let us feel it. Let's move beyond acting like a movie spectator to hearing what the living God, the God of Daniel wants to say to us today. Now again, this story, like all the stories in Daniel, really is about one thing. Who is in control? The king or God? Babylon is is gone at this moment. The Persian Empire now is is full and present and its grandeur is being expressed. Cyrus, the great new ruler, is in charge of all peoples, languages, and nations. And now he begins to bring Persian law to earth. And Daniel 6 begins with bureaucracy. 
It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made, to the account, made accountable to the three so the king would not suffer loss. So first question we all need to ask so we understand is who's Darius? Many believe that Darius is the Babylonian name for Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persians. Many others, actually probably most believe that this is Cyrus's right hand or maybe a general that was placed in charge of this new grand province called Babylon. So either way, this story is about a king or a sub-king, but this shrewd leader begins to build a new hierarchy to deal with any leaders that would misuse their position to steal, etc. They decentralize through 120 leaders and over those 120 leaders, there are are three key leaders, and one of those key leaders is Daniel. It says, now Daniel, verse 3, so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, now think of the amazing rise to power that Daniel's had as we've gone through this book. Daniel was a teenager or young adult living in Judah when the Nebuchadnezzar army came and invaded and wiped them out. He's taken as a slave then he's put in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Then he's made a wise man. Then he's made the chief over all sages and wise men. Then he's made the administrator over all of Babylon. Then he becomes the king's personal advisor. Then under his grandson, Belshazzar, becomes the prime minister of all of Babylon in the last days of that kingdom. And now under a new system, or under a new king, he's given the same or greater power. Now all through this amazing, quite scary journey, Daniel has remained faithful to God. He has not given in at all in his religiously informed convictions. He has stood, he has loved his enemies, and he has shown compassion all at once. And once again, just as a side note, never believe that God cannot use you in the industry you find yourself in. God intentionally places his people everywhere, including some of the most unexpected places, because God loves those who are far away from him. So all seems good in Daniel's golden years, all seems right in the winter of his life, and then this takes place. At this thought of him becoming in charge, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they are unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. So basically, here's the deal. Daniel doesn't cheat doesn't lie, doesn't kill, doesn't slander, doesn't covet. He's not even lazy. What we begin to see is Daniel, as an Orthodox Jew in this environment, still obeys the Ten Commandments with joy. And this drives his colleagues crazy. They're filled with jealousy, hatred, vanity, and the scary truth is faithfulness does not always equal success. They keep saying to themselves, why does this old guy have this job? We're the better, younger models. We deserve it. And second, he's from the Babylonian court, and we just defeated them. A Persian should have this. But more insidious is this. They were anti-Semitic. They just didn't like that he was a Jew. They didn't like him, his faith, his ethnic background, his political history, his ability, his age. He was everything the new order supposedly was against. So with all their scheming going nowhere because they couldn't find a fault with the guy, then they say these words. Finally, the men said to each other, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has to do something with the law of his God. 
Now this gives us profound insight, by the way, into Daniel and why he's such a great model for us today. For his critics to know this about Daniel would actually let us know that he was public about his faith. They knew his views, they knew his practices, they knew his words, they knew his rhythms. They would have known that God's word, the Jewish religious writings of the day, impacted his everyday life. So they say, well, we know one thing about Daniel. His faith is the bedrock of his life. His faith is his greatest strength, and we will twist it, and we will make it his greatest weakness. We know if we can set up a situation where he must choose between his God and our king, or his laws, or God's laws and our laws, then we can set him up and get our revenge. So they conspired, and they planned, and they came up with something so ingenious. They were able to concoct a situation where state security and human vanity and religion and politics could all come together. And the conclusion of their thought was, let's go to the king. So the collusion takes place behind the scenes this way. So the administrators, the other two, and the satraps went as a group before the king and said, may King Darius live forever. We've had a meeting, O king. I mean all of us except Daniel, but we won't say that. And we must be right because we're all here and we're all very smart and you hired us. And we have a brilliant idea to bring unity and to help you lead better and make sure that everyone knows their new place because you're important and they're lesser important. And this will bring Persian rule higher, wider, deeper across the whole place. So listen, here's what we think. The royal administrators and the prefects and the satraps and the advisors and the governors, we've all agreed that you, the king, should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown in a lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree. Put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And King Darius put the decree in writing. So the trap is set. The lie is given because Daniel is not involved. Daniel was not consulted. His colleagues now wait in the shadows. They work with Daniel day in, day out, acting like everything's fine, but behind the nice facade, they hate him and are so excited he's about to fall. And Daniel, like the whole kingdom, now knows another moment of decision has come. Just like his old friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced a fiery furnace. Now he might be eaten alive. So when it happened, what did Daniel do? Did he panic? Did he hide? Did he alter and change his ways? Did he go underground? Did he change his routine for 30 days or say, well, God won't care if I pray, won't pray for 30 days. I'll I'll talk to him on day 31. No. He did what he had done every day in his life without change. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home upstairs to his room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem and he prayed. Now, the question we need to ask is, why was he praying towards Jerusalem? Well, this goes back to Solomon and the dedication of the temple, the temple that Daniel had seen, which is now destroyed. And when Solomon dedicated the temple of God, here's what Solomon prayed in 1 Kings. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, O God, forgive. So he's praying to God, and it says in verse 10, three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, giving thanks to his God, just like he had done before. Now watch this. Daniel shows us the power of prayer and the necessity of spiritual disciplines. He prayed knowing God is in control, God is with him, God could change the situation, but if God chose not to, he was praying that God would help him through the situation. And he prayed morning, noon, and night in the same place. Now notice he starts by bowing. 
Now, why was he physically posturing himself? Because he was declaring with his body, I am only human, here today, gone tomorrow. But God, you're eternal and you are greater, and I want you to know that. And then after he bowed, he says he prayed. He petitioned. He asked God for help. He was telling God how difficult it was, how unfair it was. I guarantee he prayed to the Psalms. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies. Oh, oh God, be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers. Save me from those that are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, O oh Lord, I've done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. It says that he bowed and he prayed. Ah, but then he did something even more significant. And then he says in the middle of that terrible, sucky situation, oh, and he was thankful remembering who God was and remembering all that God had done and remembering who God is in this moment and, and remembering all the promises that God had given. See, he had perspective. He was able to see heaven's view, not just down here. He was able to stand because God was not changing. Now, don't miss this three times in the same place, in the same place and space. This would mean that he'd leave work every single day at the same time and he knew it was against the law and he knew his colleagues were gonna watch him doing it. He could have stopped for a month and started again. He could have gone to a different room or made it private, but he still was public. He would not let fear win. He knew that his life was committed to God. He loved God more than his comfort. Well, these men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about the royal decree, and you can read it. Well, didn't you say this? And we all agreed, and you thought this was a good idea. And he said, yes, that stands. And then in verse 13, it says this. Then they said to the king, well, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, there's the anti-Semitic term, by the way, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put in writing. He still prays, not once, not twice, but three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. I think he's angry. How dare you do this? I've trusted you with so much. No, no, he's distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until the sun down to save him. The king knew at that moment he had been played. He stands as an absolute ruler, but the law is more absolute now than him. He's angry at himself, he's angry at his advisors, he's angry at the situation he's been forced into. He took the day working with lawyers, trying to find a way out, but there's no way out, there's no third way, there's no back door, there's no fence to sit on. He's been tricked, but also he now needs to admit my vanity and my pride and my leadership failure, my short-sightedness got me into this mess. And there's now nothing he can do. So the king gave the order and brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. He didn't want this. The king had tried every legal option. He respected Daniel and trusted him. And then he utters these so insightful, helpful words. He says, I hope your God's powerful enough to help you. Gods are so fickle, Daniel. Some are weaker and some are stronger and sometimes they care and sometimes they don't. I can't tell you. I don't even know your God but I hope he's strong enough to save you. I hope he cares about you. I hope he'll honor you because man, you've sure given your life to him. Daniel, was it worth it? Like, was it worth your life? Well, it says a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without entertainment, being brought to him. He could not sleep. No food, no parties, no sleeping around with anyone that night. He, he is troubled because there is injustice, anger, guilt, sadness, and worry. 
It says that at first light of the dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Of course, he'd expect no answer. And then to his shock, Daniel said, yep, may the king live forever. God sent an angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. Yeah, I'm here. God answered my prayer. There's an angel in here and some lions. It's a really weird small group, but we're all working it out together. They're angry because they're still hungry, and the angel's just sitting there, and I'm here, and I'm 80, but we're all good, and we just sat together all night. This is a night I will not forget. Well, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den, and when the Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was even found on him because he had trusted in his God. Oh, now, many scholars try to dismiss this story. They go, oh, there, there, must, there must be a human reason for this. The, you know, the lions were old and not hungry. It was more like a show. Others like, no, no, some ally of Daniel fed them beforehand so he'd be okay. No, the king loved him so much, he, he drugged them. No, no, foolishness. If you read anything about the Medes and the Persians, you know this was a normal part of execution. When the king had decreed something, the law was stronger than the king. Regularly, people were fed to the lion or drowned or burned alive or all sorts. Listen, it goes against the very grain of this organization. But when you read the story, you know it's not true because it says at the king's command, the men who had set up falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children. We didn't read that in the Baptist church I grew up in, part two. Now, that's a terrifying thing, but understand, according to the Persian mentality, if you committed a crime against the state, you're not just responsible, your whole family is responsible. And so because of this ill-advised scheme, these innocent women and children are murdered because of their husband's absolute jealousy. Then the king Darius wrote a letter to all nations and peoples of every language and all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I've issued a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. He is a living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will not end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. The king says, God's kingdom, those the Jews are a defeated people, and I thought their God was just one of many, and it must have been a defeated God too. Unlike that, this God is eternal. This God seems to be beyond human kings. His rule cannot be touched. He cannot be changed. He cannot be removed. He cannot be overthrown. Hear me, all nations. If God could save Daniel like this, then he must be above all other gods. You must honor him. You must reverence him. I am, so I command you now to do the same thing. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now this is the last time we'll be in Daniel in this series. And I want to remind all of us, whether you're a skeptic, a seeker, or a long-term follower of Jesus, or you've just become one, why we are walking through Daniel together. Because we are trying to wrestle down what does it look like now for us in a new Canada and in a new world to live out our Christian faith because we now live in a country that is deeply post-Christian and deeply de-Christian and multicultural and pluralistic. As our culture has become more and more apathetic to the Christian faith, been there, done that, didn't work for me or my grandparents. And as our culture is now becoming, moving from apathy to hostility, where they're starting to say, well, the biblical worldview is dangerous. The biblical worldview is a threat to the pluralism we actually like. It seems to be intolerant. You seem to be on the wrong side of history. Here's what Daniel not only demonstrates us, to us and teaches us, but he calls us and encourages us to stand. He was able to thrive in his time of exile, and we can do it too. 
And the one thing we learn right across from the book of Daniel from beginning to end is this. Don't just believe God is fully in control. Live your life knowing he actually is fully in control. The way that we live our life in this moment as Canadians, in real freedom in this new Canada, and in this world that is getting bigger and smaller all at once is this. The way not to be washed away from fear, the way we choose not to compromise, the way we thrive in exile is that we do not just theologically confess, well, God is in control. No, this is God's world. God is not just the creator and walked away. No, our creator God is still involved in the things of this world. He is the author of time and history. God can step in at any time and change things. God is in charge, and even if he does not choose to step in at this moment, we know he makes all things right in the end. Sovereignty is the underpinning of faithfulness. If you do not believe God is really in control, you will hedge your bets, even as a Christian. But if you really believe that God, his eye is on the sparrow, if you really believe that, then you will not hedge your bets and you will know that God is good and God is loving and God is holy. And no matter who's running the country or no matter what your family's saying or no matter what culture declares, God has the final say over all things. He's sovereign, and sovereignty is the underpinning of every generation of faithful followers of God. When they believed it, they stood. Here's the second thing. We are called not just to be nice people or good people or nice Canadians. We are called to be holy people in this time. May the only thing that you are accused of is loving God too much. The only thing they could say about Daniel is he obeyed that Bible too much. We as God's people must not just worship God on a Sunday or give our our money. No, no, no. We are called to worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives, in our families, and in our workplaces. God is calling us in this moment not just to be nice people or good people or kind people or people that even have some good character. He is calling us to be holy worshipers. When you choose not to lie at work or to steal or gossip to get ahead, you're Daniel and God will bless you. When your boss tells you to do something illegal or actually get ahead in a social setting or in a cultural setting or actually in a work setting by setting a person up and they take the fall and you say, no, I will not do that, you are Daniel and God will honor you. You will be close to the lines then when you stand and say no at work to hurting others, no to breaking the law in small or large ways, no to destroying others. The only thing that they could find fault with Daniel was he followed God too closely. The church far too long has looked like the world at work, and we cannot afford it any longer. Paul is so clear in the New Testament while he was writing to Christians living under the time of Nero, an insane guy who ran an empire into the ground. This is what he wrote in Romans 13, 7. You give everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, you pay your taxes as a Christian. If you owe someone revenue, you give them their money back. If you owe someone respect, you give them respect. If you owe someone honor, then you give them honor. What did we learn in that series earlier this year, Jesus in the Workplace? Paul wrote these amazing words under the power of the Spirit where he said in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart. There is no room for lazy Christians. You work at it with your, okay, whatever you do, you stay at home mom and dad, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a hairdresser, are you online and becoming one of these global personalities on YouTube? Are you a person who's a mechanic? Fill in the blank, whatever you do, whatever you do, 
because you are a follower of the God of Daniel found through Jesus by the Holy Spirit, you work at it with all your heart. Why? Because you're actually doing it for Jesus, not for your human masters. You do it for Jesus, not your human master. Since you know what? Oh, you're going to receive a reward, an inheritance from the Lord, and the Lord Christ, he's the one you're serving at home and at work. Three o'clock in the morning changing diapers, you do that for Jesus. Serving your husband and wife, you do that for Jesus. Serving, why? This is the difference between us and the world because we know we're not just trying to be good to get ahead. We are worshiping God at our work. We are worshiping God when we obey the government. We worship God because the Ten Commandments and how it's fulfilled in Jesus is the way we honor a God who has loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. So we are at this point where we go, sovereignty, sovereignty, it's the underpinning, and we will not be like the rest of the world and play this game. No, no, we will not get ahead by sinning. We will honor our God because our God deserves worship. Here's the third thing Daniel demonstrates in this last chapter that is so critical for us as a nation, the church in this nation. It's this, Daniel shows us the place, the power, and the promise of prayer. When you plug yourself into the presence of God in times of trouble, you will see things rightly because you will start seeing things from heaven's view. What Daniel lived out, Paul later encapsulated in one very famous verse, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, and notice, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, catch this. If there is one word that describes our youth culture today, if there's one word that describes how many of us are feeling, it is the word anxiety. We are swimming in anxiety. But anxiety is a complicated thing. I love when one person said there are four forms of anxiety. One is worry. Something may or may not occur, and I worry about that. I just don't know. Then there's stress. Strain over a situation I can't control. It's happening, and I can't do anything about it. Then there's fear uneasiness over possible danger, evil, or pain touching me. Oh, and then there's darkness, when fear is experienced, when you actually are touched by danger, evil, pain, or darkness. Now, here's the amazing thing that Daniel demonstrates and Paul encapsulates, which we're going to need to thrive very well in exile. God says, whether you're stressed or worried or fearful or darkness is touching you, in that moment, you pray. You bring your petitions, you ask the living God of heaven and earth into the situation and ask for his will into what we face. We don't just pray though, our prayers also in that moment must be filled and grounded in something else, thanksgiving. Daniel, while his life is on the line and he's going to again lose his job and his life, though people are against him because of his faith and ethnicity, he is filled with thanksgiving. How is that possible? Because he says, oh, I know who God is. I know God, I know his love, I recall his mercy to me, I recall his mercy to the generations before me, I know the work he's done in the past, I know the present work he's doing now, and I know the future is secure because he does not lie, he cannot lie, his promises are true. Thanking God for his faithfulness and his protection and his benefits is the most important thing you can do in a time of persecution and at a time of thriving in exile and being moved to the margins because when you thank God, you know who's in control, you know he does not lie, and you know that he has promised that Jesus is coming back, not the first advent, Christmas, the second one when he splits the skies and everything's gonna be made right. And if you forget to bow and petition and be thankful, then you miss the peace of God. 
That's why, I love this, this is, why Dan, this is why Paul says, and then after you've done those things, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So many of us don't know the peace of God because in the moment of panic and anxiety, we're not praying three times a day like Daniel. We're running around with our heads cut off wondering what's gonna happen. And Daniel's like, no, no, no. You gotta go three times a day and talk to Jesus. So here's the heart of what we learn. In the moment where things become difficult and comfort is threatened, the spiritual discipline of prayer becomes so much more important. Here's the fourth thing we learn out of Daniel. We must be ready not only to stand for God in this moment, but we must be ready to do something again, which I've talked about lately, which none of us want to do. It's to suffer. Paul, Peter said these words in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must be ready not only as C4, but as the church in Canada to suffer. And a few weeks ago, I did a summary. Let me do it again as we end the series. The very first place you will end up suffering for the good news of Jesus and the love of God is by your own hand. We want to place ourselves in the lion's den. Romans seven nineteen. For I do not do good things. I, for I do not do the good things I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. I keep on doing. Anyone want to say amen to that? Yeah, yeah, me. What a wretched man or woman I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. We want to sin. We want to give in to our sin. We like comfort over obedience, lust over love, greed over generosity. We want to find loopholes in the Bible. You are starting to head down a path of compromise when you say to the Bible, I know better, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, because we're in 2018, and if you only had the information I had, and if you only had my story, no, 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 no. This is God's word. You live under like this, under the word of God. God has spoken. You are not God. He is God. He is loving and holy all the time. We are not. When you start doing this, you're heading down a dark path. When you do this, you will find joy and freedom. Do not bow to yourself or your family or our culture. When God says something is a sin, you say, I will not do that because I honor God. I will actually crucify myself for the sake of Christ because his love is worth my suffering in the short term. The first place we struggle and we must not bow is to ourselves. The second is this. You'll be in the the lion's den very quickly when you stand in public I shared this a few weeks ago, let me say it again. We believe as Christians that every human being on earth is valuable, made in the image of God. Children in the womb are humans to be protected and not killed. The elderly and disabled are valuable and must be protected. Abortion and euthanasia, according to scripture, is murder. Is there love and grace for us who have done these things? Of course there is. There's always second chances. No one is excluded from God's family if they want salvation. But remember, the Bible is clear what is right and wrong. Every single one of us struggles with racism in some form, but racism goes against the very fabric and nature of what God has ordained and what we will see in the new heavens and the new earth. Immigrants and the poor are made in the image of God and must be helped, supported, and protected. God is close to the poor. The Bible says it again and again, and God says in the same breath, murder is wrong. So as Christians, we stand for life and the poor and the displaced, and when we stand on God's truth, like I shared before, the political left and right will not know what to do with us, and they will be so angry, but of course they will be because our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is from another place. We respect everyone, we're kind, we do not be angry, we will not be known as people of hate, but we will stand, we will not compromise on Christian conviction or compassion. You will be persecuted in the new Canada when you unashamedly declare the exclusive and unique work and person of Jesus Christ in a pluralistic world. 
John 14, 6, Jesus said, not just to his followers, but to the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. The only one that can bring us to God is God himself. That is why Jesus is unique beyond every other religious leader, a philosopher and teacher who's ever existed, because he's the only one who's got the remedy to our problem. Acts 4.12, salvation is found by no one else. There is no other name given under heaven, given to humanity by which we must be saved. You must be ready. We must be ready to suffer in our culture. When you say that God is our creator and he is our designer, he has given us the world, but he's also given us sex and gender. And when you say God has set boundaries around what is right and wrong, what is allowed and unallowed, you will be attacked or threatened or humiliated and shamed. You also, depending on your own experience, may have a deep struggle trying to work this out with now your faith. I love what David Bennett just wrote in his recent memoirs, A War of Loves, the unexpected story of a gay activist discovering Jesus. He says, what matters is what Jesus is actually saying to us. The lie we keep telling ourselves is if we compromise holiness, we'll ensure church growth. That's just false. Embracing and raising up those who are sexually faithful and obedient as a witness to our culture, that will attract the world. Without holiness, Jesus Christ cannot be seen in us by the world. And without love, the world will resist the truth of this holiness. Wow. What we are seeing here is this very uncomfortable, very biblical 2,000-year tradition call where we are called to be both holy and loving at the same time and call people to God's will and ways and yet being, un- being deeply compassionate. God says to us, in this time of compromise, do not compromise. The lion's den will be close when you love your enemies. The lion's den will be close when you turn the other cheek. The lion's den will come close when you are hanging out with friends or family or neighbor and they want to go to a position or a place you're not allowed to go. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to a debauchery. When people say, oh, we're gonna have fun doing this, you're like, I'm sorry, I'm not a prude. I just, know. See, in this time of rage and hatred and polarization, in this time where anxiety and fear is being stoked and everyone's only listening to their own echo chambers, hear this. We as the church are here for this moment in this reason. God has placed us, not just C4, the church in Canada for this moment to declare that the left or the right is not God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we will not compromise on Christian conviction that has been held for 2,000 years, nor can we compromise in Christian compassion and become truth bearers who have no love. We need to successfully suffer in the middle. It was the great church father, Gregory of Nyssa, that once wrote, any theory divorced from a living example is like an unbreathing statue. For far too long, we have been acting like an unbreathing statue in Canada as a church where we are thinking the right things, but nothing is being put into place. Now is the time for holiness. Now is the time for sovereignty. Now is the time for prayer. Now is the time for Christian suffering. Now is the time for Christian conviction. Now is the time to show our nation and the world that there still is a God who loves them. There still is a God who wants them. There is still a God who cares for them. And we are to be the bearer of Jesus Christ's good news to this country in this moment. You can clap about that, I'll take that, yes, yes. So now, this is where I end this whole series. I end it with resurrection. Because again, one of the great concerns I have in my own life and for our church's life and for the Canadian church life is wrong expectations. 
I love when one person wrote this. Most of us believe in our hearts that if we're good Christians, God's gonna return us the favor. <laughs> An extension of this belief, belief is if things go bad for me in a season, then God has something better for me. So God will always come through for me, replacing the bad with the better. Well, that's true and wrong all at once. This is the issue. Wonder if Daniel had been eaten by the lions. Was God not faithful then? Was God actually more like the devil? Like, wonder if he had died. So let's bring it home to all of us. What about all of us who love Jesus and we've lost parents recently or kids walked away or died? What about lost dreams or jobs or what about the sickness some of us are suffering or what about the injustice we know on this side of heaven is never gonna be worked out? Oh, I wanna remind everyone today, Jesus prayed and I think Jesus was sort of significant. Oh, right, perfect. And he was in the garden and he asked his dad to get out and Daniel wasn't perfect and Daniel ended up living and Jesus ended up getting executed and dying. Did Jesus pray wrong prayers? No, here's what we learn out of Daniel, which is gonna be crucial for the church to thrive in exile. Here it is. Right expectations matter at the heart of this. If you have wrong expectations, they can shipwreck a good marriage like that. Wrong expectations could kill a friendship. Wrong expectations about a church can cause disunity without even blinking. And wrong expectations about a walk with God can kill it. So this is why we need to come to this place. Listen again to what Cyrus or Darius, depending on who you think he is, actually said. God's kingdom will not be destroyed. This is a pagan saying this. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he what? Oh, he saves. This, this is the most important truth. And Daniel in the lion's den is the archetype of this. The great expectation level, leveler is found here. We will all be saved from the lion's den. It's called the physical resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the new era. When Jesus didn't just spiritually come back from the dead like a ghost. No, when he came back from the dead after three days, he said, if you trust in me, I'm going to do this for you too. And I'm going to raise you from the dead. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. The old order of things will pass away. And here's what we've got to encapsulate in our hearts and our minds and reintegrate into our churches. Ready? Jesus says, I will give you rest in the now, but I'll give you ultimate rest in the later. And we can suffer in small and large ways in the middle because we know in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So it doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't matter what the culture is saying. It doesn't matter what your university professors lecture. It, it doesn't matter. Because in the end, we are called to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals the God of Daniel, experienced through the Holy Spirit. We're called to be faithful now. Knowing that the resurrection, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, you'll compromise. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you will never give your life for him in the now. That's why Paul wrote these words right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Oh, but thanks be to God. He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, oh, you stand firm. At work, you stand in your relationships, you stand. To your own self, you stand. You stand firm. Let nothing move you. You always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is what? Not in vain. He is not going to forget your suffering. He's not going to let you alone. 
God has placed us in this nation in this time to be kind, ironic, and yet still call our nation back to the Father through Jesus the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so would you stand with me and can we end this series together and prepare for Advent by praying these short prayers. Number one, Lord, thank you that you have not changed. Thank you that the God of Daniel is found through Jesus by the Spirit. Thank you that you're in control. And we just want to say again, perfect love casts out fear. So we need it. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit across all of C4. And not just C4, send the Holy Spirit across the whole church in all of its diversity in Canada, from cathedrals and bells and smells to those who speak in tongues to those who are in small, the whole family, the whole dysfunctional family. Send your Holy Spirit to drive out fear and teach us the sovereignty of God. Number two, we pray for a purity. Father and Son, would you so convict this church of righteousness that we would be good and kind and loving people in our workplaces and in our families. Produce in us love that makes no sense. Help us to only be accused of being godly. Hear our prayer. Third Lord, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to teach this church to pray. Some of us have the gift of prayer, but most of us only have the discipline of prayer. Fill the discipline of prayer in a way we've never experienced before. Lead this church to pray and be thankful. And Lord, we also continue to pray that we would be willing to stand and give us the great humility to stand and help us to suffer well. And lastly, we just pray for our nation and we pray for our neighbors and our friends that as Daniel was able to witness to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and also then to the last king, that we would be placed in the names and places of people so they can find out who God is again. So we pray right now over the next four weeks as we prep for Christmas in this Advent season, may thousands of moments happen where thousands of people come and hear the good news of Jesus in this church and many other churches. Thank you, Lord, you're never gonna leave us or forsake us. Thank you that the resurrection of Jesus is true. Thank you that Christmas was happening so the resurrection would happen. Help this church to have this incredible Holy Spirit give us an incredible vision of the risen, glorified Jesus so we can keep going and never compromise in the love that is never, never, never worth giving up. Come, Lord Jesus, send your spirit and do things among us that are impossible. We ask this in the name of the Father who called us, the Son who dies and prayed for us, and the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.